All right. Good evening, everyone. We're going we're gonna to begin. I know that there are still people, Baruch Hashem, coming in. But I, I want to begin this evening first by thanking all of our sponsors. Baruch Hashem, we have a number of sponsors for tonight's year. To thank Robin Schaefer for dedicating tonight's year. Fran Hissler, in commemoration of the art sites of her grandmother, Ida Markman, and Mildred Abramowitz, cousin Ina Sue Abramowitz-Green, and Aunt Mary Rindler, whose yard sites all take place around Purim. We thank Neil and Pam Weissman for dedicating the shir tonight, wishing everyone the very best of health and a safe Purim. We thank Nina Allen Goldberg for dedicating the shir tonight in loving memory of her mother, Miriam Bas Avram, who was an advocate for women's Torah study. Truly beautiful. We thank the Haber family for dedicating the shir tonight in loving memory of Chava Bas Mordechai on the occasion of her yard site, which is tonight. We thank Alison Steinmetz for dedicating the shir tonight in honor of the miraculous vaccine. That's a great dedication, Baruch Hashem. And a thank you to the shul for all of the chizik over the past year. We thank Mr. and Mrs. Engelsberg for dedicating the shir tonight in honor and appreciation of the kahila and Rebbitz and Solberg. So thank you to that. We thank Shandy and Ellie Lassen for dedicating the Shir tonight commemoration of the 13th yard site of Shandy's sister, Miriam Riva Bas Avram Vephraim Ve'etel, whose yard site is also tonight Vav Adar. And we thank Jacob Milner for dedicating the Shir in honor of his wife's Goldie's birthday. I saw Goldie Milner walking before. Happy birthday to Goldie. Sheer sponsorships are the gift that keeps on giving. It's better than jewelry, better than flowers. I, I also just want to take the opportunity really just to say two other thank yous. In addition to our, in addition to our sheer sponsors, um, I don't think either of them are, are inside the shul right now, but a very special thank you to our executive director, Tashani Topper. Um, it's very possible that many of you might not have even met Shani. Shani started with the shul in the middle of a pandemic, summertime, and has come in and really has done such incredible work from, from the beginning with such attentiveness to detail and such incredible love and dedication. You would have thought that she was born and bred in this shul, the amount of time and dedication that she gives. And so when you see her, please make sure to give a very special thank you. Shani in here? A very special thank you to our incredible executive director, Shani Tapper. It's also a wonderful opportunity for us to welcome our new office manager, Michal Reitberger, who, Baruch Hashem, also we, we are truly privileged in our Kihila to have such a wonderful membership, so many incredible families, so many incredible individuals, and Baruch Hashem, I think the most incredible staff. And just even just the setup today, the source sheets, everything that goes on is really a credit to our incredible team, really under the leadership of Shani. So thank you, Shani. Thank you, Michal. And then here's Hashem will to accomplish incredible things in the years to come. I, I want to begin by saying that I find myself a little bit uh, overwhelmed this evening. My wife told me, you look nervous. And I don't usually get nervous when I speak because it's kind of what I do. And uh, I, I do it relatively frequently. But I realize as I stand here tonight, so this is the first shear, first women's shear that we've had inside of the walls of this shul for over a year. And for a very long time, this Beis Aknesses and this Beis Medrash was deprived of the beautiful Kol Torah. And now, although the pandemic is not over, Baruch Hashem, our Minyanim are back, our Tfilos are back, and some of our shiurim are back, but how I just want to, I want to thank you because it's incredibly inspiring for me 
to be here tonight. You know, I'm giving other women shiur in Baruch Hashem, but they're over Zoom. And I'm sure I'm so done with Zoom on, 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 on multiple levels. And to be able to sit here in a shul filled with Nashim Tzedkanios, it's Wednesday night. I'm sure there's a million different things to do. But that you're coming here to learn Torah, you're coming here to prepare for the Yom Tov of Purim. I'd have to imagine that for Klal Yisrael in this moment, Eina Zuchus Gedola Mizo. And to see that our shul, Baruch Hashem, is awake, is alive, is vibrant, that women's Talmud Torah, men's Talmud Torah, Torah, Torah and Tefillah are happening over here is an incredible source of personal chizik. So I thank all of you for coming out tonight, for making the time to prepare for Purim together. And the Mirza Hashem, we should be zoch over the next little bit of time that we have together to grow together in our appreciation of Purim, to grow together in our appreciation of Torah. And Halavai HaKadosh Baruch Hu should see the Mesiras Nefesh we have for us Torah, for our Yiddishkeit. And in that Sechus, HaKadosh Baruch Hu should bring a refuah to our entire world. HaKadosh Baruch Hu should usher in a period of Shalom. And we should be zoch Mirza Hashem, that for our coming pre-yamim tovim shiurim, they should be zochet to take place in Yerushalayim habenuim hira b'yaminu. Amen. So I'd like to share with you tonight a little bit of an insight on Megillah Esther. The title of our shir, I know, was Behind the Mask of Insecurity, the Power of Esther Malka. So I want to tell you, I, I exert a little bit of executive privilege. I changed the title. And the title is going to be instead Behind the Mask of Anonymity. And you'll see why I'm choosing to go down that road, down, down that road as we develop this year. Let's begin with number one. Let's jump right in. So the Megillah says as follows. We're at the beginning of the Megillah. So just to give you context, you all know the story. So of course we know again, just in the middle of Perak Bays, Achashverosh has already executed Vashti. He has put into motion the wheels for the beauty pageant to go ahead and select the next queen of the Persian Median Empire. So the Torah tells us again, Mordechai is getting all nervous and he tries to hide his, his niece. His, the relationship between Mordechai and Esther is not immediately clear. But the Pasuk says as follows, Vayi omen es hadasa. So the Pasuk says in Mordechai's relationship to, to, to Esther, literally he had brought up Hadassah, he Esther Bas Dodo. She was Esther, his uncle's daughter, Bas Dodo could also mean his cousin. Ki ein la avaim. For this young woman did not have a father or a mother. The young woman was very beautiful. And as when her parents died, Mordechai took her literally as a daughter. So the Gemara is incredibly intrigued by this Pasuk for one simple reason, which is, what's the strange part of this Pasuk? So the description of Esther, namely what? So first of all, a physical appearance. Now the truth is, that's not so dramatic because remember, after all, we're talking about a beauty pageant, right? Achashverosh is not looking for Midos. Let's be honest, right? Achashverosh is looking for beauty. So of course, this, so, the, so the Megillah is setting this up. Esther was an incredibly beautiful woman. But what's intriguing about our introduction to Esther is the Megillah is not clear as to what her name is. What is her name? Vahi omen as Hadassah, he Esther. He raised Hadassah, who's Esther? So I don't understand. She has two names. She has one name. She was known by one name, not known by the other name. So the Gemara jumps on this in number two. And the Gemara says, Vahi omen as Hadassah, Karli Hadassah, Vakarli Esther. The Megillah calls her both Hadassah and Esther. Tanya, Rabbi Meir Omer, Esther Shema. Her real name was Esther. Velama Nikra Shema Hadassah. So why does the Megillah call her by Hadassah? 
because the righteous, the righteous are often referred to as hadasim, as myrtle branches. That's actually taken from a pasuk in Zechariah. And the idea is that just like hadasim, myrtle branches, give off a beautiful scent, so to the tzaddikim, the righteous, through their actions, give off a beautiful scent as well. So that's one possibility. Her real name was Esther, but her descriptive name, so to speak, was Hadassah. Rabbi Huda Omer, no, Hadassah Shema. No, her real name was Hadassah. Velama Nikra Shema Esther. So why was she called Esther? Al Shem Shahaisa Misateres Tevareha. Because ultimately, again, she was very, Misateres literally means she hid information. That's right, again, when Achashirish wants to know, who are you, where are you from? And Esther Magedes. Esther doesn't say a word. She does not divulge a shred of information about her identity. So second opinion, her name is Hadassah. Esther, remember again, the Shorish of Esther is Samich, Sof, Reish, Seser. She was secretive. She was secretive. Okay, third opinion. Rabbi Nechemya Omer, Hadassah Shema. Rabbi Nechemya goes back to the original opinion. You know, her real name is Hadassah. V'lama Nechemya Esther. So why was she called Esther? Shehaya ha'umos, shehaya umos ha'olam korin osa al-shum istaher. Because ultimately, again, the nations of the world, meaning the people in Parasumadai, they called her Esther Ashum Istaher. Now, Istaher, Rashi translates as the moon. That Esther was as beautiful as the moon. Strange, no? Esther Hamalka is the heroine of the story. Esther Hamalka, Esther Hamalka was the architect of salvation. We'll talk about her relationship with Mordechai and the role that they each played. But it's intriguing to see that it's not clear what the name of the heroine of the story is. Is her name Esther? Is her name Hadassah? Is Esther the real name? Hadassah the descriptive name? Is Hadassah the real name? Esther the descriptive name? Amachlokis and the Gemara. One more piece of information. Furthermore, again, the Megillah said, the Megillah said, Vahi omenes Hadassah, that Mordechai raised Hadassah. Now, omen, whenever you see that word, that means you're raising an orphan. So if you're telling me that you're raising an orphan, then why does the Pasuk need to say, Ki ein la'avva'in? Why does it have to say she didn't have a father or mother? Obviously, if she's an orphan. So listen to this dramatic piece of information. The Gemara says, Last line in number two. So if it says, so actually the Gemara has a different question. It says, She didn't have a mother and father. And when her mother and father died, Mordechai raised her. So why do you need to say both? She didn't have a mother and father. Her mother and father died. Omen, she was an orphan. Amravacha ibarto meis aviha. When Esther's mother became pregnant, her father passed away. Yaladata Mesa And her mother died in childbirth. Esther Hamalka never met her parents. And in fact, Rashi comments over here. I'm sorry, Rashi number six, just for a moment. So Rashi says, I'm just going out of order just for a moment. Listen to these words in number six in Rashi. Shafilu yom echad lo la av va'em. Esther Hamalka did not have a father and mother for even one day in this world. Her father died during her during pregnancy, during mother's pregnancy, and her mother died in childbirth. She never had a parent in this world. Now, to make things a little bit more complicated, if you go back to number four for just a moment, according to here from the parish of Rav Yosef ben Yosef Nachimosh. So Rav Yosef ben Nachimosh was a student of the Rush, 
who lived in the late 1300s. He has a commentary on the Megillah, and he writes as follows. If you skip down a little bit, he says, See, he quotes in another opinion that says, her real name was Hadassah, but she was called Esther. Why was she called Esther? Ultimately, again, because the Persians called the son Istaher. So I'm just pointing out a little bit more ambiguity. The Gemara said that they called her Esther because Esther Istaher is the moon. Rabbi Yosef Nachimar says, by the way, no, no, Istaher is the sun. Is the sun. One more piece, the Aben Ezra. This one I guarantee you never heard before. The Aben Ezra writes, if you look in the second line, V'yesh Omrim, Divra Yachid, Kibas Ayin Dalid Shana Haisa. How old was Esther when she was conscripted into the king's beauty pageant? 74 years old. Huh? Exactly, right? <laughs> 74 years old. Where do you get 74 years old from, says the Gemara? Sorry, says Ibn Ezra. Kimispar Hadassah. It's the numerical value. The numerical value of the name Hadassah. If you put this all together, we emerge with something incredibly strange, which is whether her name is Esther or her name is Hadassah, they really represent the same dynamic a hidden dimension. It's true that Hadassah and that myrtle branches give off a beautiful fragrance, but only when? Only if you get close enough to them. If you look at them from a distance, you cannot perceive the fragrance, right? The moon, right? The moon, if you go, right? If you know, it's Hadassah. If you see Esther, Estaher, the moon, the moon sometimes is luminescent and beautiful, and sometimes the moon is totally hidden and obscured. So amazingly enough, what's happening over here in the Gemara is the Gemara is struggling with one basic central idea. We don't know who Esther Hamalka is. We don't know her name. We don't know her identity. Was Hadassah her name? Was Esther her name? If Esther was her name, what does Esther mean? Does Esther mean the sun? Does Esther mean the moon? Was she 74 years old? She never had parents. Now, what does it mean she never had parents? Do you know that it's interesting? Nina and I, Nina just lost her mother a, a week and a half ago. And we were speaking about this. That, you know, it's incredible to see that the mourning period for a parent in halacha is the longest mourning period which is totally counterintuitive because the loss of a parent in the world of loss is quote-unquote the most natural loss. We pray that it should always be children who bury parents and never has to shalom the opposite. So why is the mourning period so long? So the Svarim writes something amazing. They explain because our first piece of identity comes from our parents. Right? How do you identify when you're a child? When you're a kid, you don't have your own identity. As much as children think they have their own identity, they don't have their own identity. They're really an appendage of the parent. Right? My first piece of identity is that I am the son of this father and I am the son of this mother. So from a halachic perspective, when a person loses a parent, no matter how old, established, or successful you are, you lose a piece of yourself. There's a piece of your identity that goes away and from a spiritual perspective that is highly traumatic. When the Megillah tells us, Ki ein ein, she had no father or mother. And the Gemara says, literally, Esther never met her parents. They weren't alive in the same time in the world as she was. The Megillah's painting a picture of a woman without an identity. Who is she? The heroine of the story. I don't want to ruin the end of the story, right? But we win, right? Baruch Hashem. 
And it's because of Esther. And yet here we begin to see we can't even figure out what is her real name. And we can't even figure out what her name is. And we don't even know anything about her because we don't even know her parents. In fact, a little bit of genealogy that the Megillah does give us of Esther Bas Avichayo. Avichayo also, in the eyes of Chazal, is enigmatic. Who is that? Who, who is Avichayo? So Chazal have a couple of different drushas. But isn't it intriguing that the most important character in the Megillah is shrouded in this incredible anonymity. And the anonymity goes on. But take a look at number seven for just a moment. So the Megillah continues to continue on in the story. So remember, Esther ultimately is taken from Mordechai and taken into the beauty pageant of the king. So what happens? The Pasuk says, So it's Esther's turn to go to Ahasuerosh. So what happens? Remember, if you were a woman in this beauty pageant, so the disadvantage was you were stuck in the beauty pageant. The, but however, the women had access to anything they wanted in the palace. So perfume and makeup and clothing, whatever you want, you, you could have. So what happens now? It's Esther's turn to be with Ahasuerosh. So what happens? Lobiksha davar. She didn't ask for anything. She didn't ask for anything. Esther asks for nothing. She had all the resources of the palace at her fingertips. She asks for nothing. The only thing she had to take was that which was forced upon her. I guess she had to put something on that was respectable. Whatever else. But she did not ask for anything. Why did she not ask for anything? The al in number 8 says, Al-Kin lo davar, ki emas asher amar hagai, So the al says, Esther was making a statement. And the statement was, I don't want to be here. The statement was, I'm being taken against my will. The statement was, I'm not participating again in this willingly. She felt that had she accepted the clothing, the jewelry, whatever else, that would have been her active participation. So she refuses everything as a way of voicing her objection to being included in this pageant. But look what Rav Yosef Nachimash says again. Number nine, lo davar. Lahakel al Shomreha. Why doesn't she ask for anything? She didn't want to be a bother to anyone. Lahakel al Shomreha. She didn't want to bother anyone to have to get her stuff. Would she have, would she have wanted a new dress, some jewelry, some perfume, some makeup? Maybe. But she didn't want to put upon anyone else. She didn't want to go ahead. What Yosi Nachimash is saying, Esther's view of herself was that who am I? Who am I? I'm going to ask someone for something. I know that I'm here in the pageant. I know I'm here in the palace. I know as part of the right as being part of the pageant that I have the right to request all of these things. But who am I? The anonymity continues. And the anonymity we now see is not just about Esther, but it's about Esther's perception of herself as well. Who am I to ask for something in the palace? Who are you? You're a young girl. Let's not go with the approach that she was 74 years old. 74 is young. 74 is the new 34. That's for sure. Right? But, but, but again, but assuming that we don't go with that approach, she's a young woman plucked from her home, plucked from her family. Remember, again, there is an opinion that holds that Mordechai and Esther were husband and wife. Potentially plucked from a marriage. Who am I? Who are you? You're the woman who's been robbed of your life. No, no, no. I'm a no one. I'm a no one. What, what right do I have to put upon anyone else? What right do I have to ask anything? 
And here's where it comes to a head. Take a look at number 10. So fast forwarding, I'm taking you through the, pretty much the entire Megillah. So if you look at number 10, give you the context. Haman has put out his decree against the Jewish people. Haman is now going to go ahead and wipe out the entire Jewish nation. Mordechai hears about this edict. He hears about this decree and he sends word to Esther. Sends word to Esther. So what happens? This is number 10. So Mordechai says to Esther, Esther, you need to go to the king to supplicate on behalf of the Jewish people. You need to intervene. Remember again, obviously Esther has already been chosen as queen. She occupies a position of prominence for some strange reason. Achashverosh is infatuated with Esther. Despite the fact that what? That what? He knows nothing about her. He knows nothing about her. He doesn't know who she is. He doesn't know where she's from. He doesn't know who her family is. He knows absolutely nothing about her yet. He's clearly infatuated with her. So Mordechai says to Esther, you need to go to the king. Esther responds in number 10. Esther sends a message to Hasach to go to Mordechai. So Esther says the famous words to Mordechai, you can't just roll into the king. You can't just show up. You have to be invited. And if you're not invited, you run the risk of immediate execution. So I can't go. I, I hear what you're saying. I understand the need to go ahead and save the Jewish people. You want me to go to the king? I can't go to the king. And Esther said, I haven't been called to the king in the last 30 days. Last 30 days. So Esther says to Mordechai, can't do it. What's your plan B? What's your plan B? I understand the existential threat to the Jewish people. I can't do it. I'm sorry. But tell me what else you want to do. And, and I'm there. Look at Mordechai's response. Vayomer Mordechai lahashivel Esther. Al tidami benaf sheikh lehimolek beis hamelech nikala yehudim. Mordechai says to Esther, and these are strong words. Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from amongst all of the Jews. Ki macharish tacharishi baiz hazos revach vatzala yamodi odim amakom acher. Because Esther, if you fail to act, salvation will come from somewhere else. Remember again. God does not need us to be the agents of his salvation. He gives us the privilege to partner with him in bringing about salvation. But he doesn't need us. So Mordechai says to Esther, listen, if you don't act now, God will save us in a different way. However, but you and your father's home, you will perish. And Mordechai says to Esther, who knows? Maybe it was for this very moment that you became queen. And the Malbim says something amazing. The Malbim comments, what does it mean when Mordechai says to Esther, if you don't act now, then you and your father's home will be lost. What does that mean? And the Malbim says something life-altering. He says, sometimes... Hashem puts us in this world to accomplish one thing in one moment. And sometimes Hashem brings about multiple generations just to go ahead and bring about one person to accomplish one thing in one moment. And says the Malbim, Mordechai was telling Esther, 
If you miss your moment, you deny meaning to your life and potentially to the generations who came before you. Umi odea im laes kazos higat lamalchos. Esther, maybe this is your moment. Maybe this is the moment that your parents brought you into this world for. The parents who you never met. Maybe this was the moment for which your grandparents brought your parents. The grandparents who you never met. Maybe multiple generations just existed in this world to bring about an Esther Amalka so that she could do something transformatively salvational in one moment. And if you miss your moment, Esther, you deny meaning to your life and potentially... To all those who came before you, this Malbim by itself is probably one of the most dramatic pieces of Torah you will ever encounter. Life is filled with these moments. Do you know what happens often when incredible, transformational, cathartic moments come along, cross our threshold? You know what usually happens? Not, clinical tests have shown that 9 out of 10 times when people are presented with transformational, cathartic moments, you know what they say? Baruch Hashem, your group of Nashim Tzidkaniyos. You don't know what I'm talking about. But those of us who are not righteous, I'll tell you what we say. Too busy. Too busy. <laughs> not now. Not now. Now's not the right time for a transformational, cathartic moment. When is the right time? Come back tomorrow. Come back. To- no, tomorrow's not good either because it's Erev Shabbos. It's Thursday. You know, may- maybe next week. I think I have an opening for a transformational, cathartic moment in a couple of weeks from now. And we go through life presented with incredible moments. Moments of growth. Moments of inspiration, moments of change, moments of chesed, moments where we can make a difference. And we so often let them slip through our fingers. Mordechai says to Esther, Esther, remember, Megillah's Esther is the first book written after the close of prophecy. There is no Navi in the story of Esther. That's what makes it unique. It is the first post-prophetic story. So Mordechai says, Mi who knows? Who knows? Maybe this is your moment. Can I say for sure it's your moment? I can't say for sure. But maybe, just maybe, it's your moment. And if you let it go now, you run the risk of depriving your entire existence and potentially generations before you of meaning. But perhaps Mordechai was saying something else to Esther as well. He says, Esther, my beloved Esther, do you want to live the rest of your life shrouded in anonymity? Do you just want to be a face in the crowd? Do you just want to be another person? Now granted, she's the queen. She wasn't exactly a face in the crowd. But Mordechai was saying to Esther, Esther, to a certain degree, your whole life, you've been anonymous. To your whole life, are you Esther? Are you Hadassah? Are you 74 or are you 24? Are you the sun or are you the moon? You don't have an identity from your parents. And Esther, it's in this moment right now that you have to make a decision. Because Mordechai says to Esther something amazing. Doesn't have to mean you and your father's home will be destroyed. Remember again, Esther has no father's home. Her parents are dead. She has no extended family. Mordechai is the only family she has. So perhaps when Mordechai says, Hare'at ubeisavich tovedu, tovedu be lost, doesn't have to mean be killed. It could be being lost into the clutches of anonymity and obscurity. Esther, you have to make a choice. Do you want to be someone? 
Do you want to carve out an identity? Do you want to establish a persona? Or are you forever going to live in the shadows of anonymity? This was the challenge that Mordechai was putting before Esther. Who do you want to be? What do you want to be? Do you want to be the unknown one, Esther Hadassah, Sun Moon? Or are you ready to carve out an identity for yourself? And then Esther does something amazing. We'll tie this together in just a moment. Esther does two things in the immediate aftermath of this exchange with Mordechai. Number one, take a look at verse number 12. The first thing she does. The first thing Esther Amalka does is she says to Mordechai, go and gather all of the Jewish people. Go and gather the Jewish people. Fast. Don't eat, don't drink for three days. I'm also going to fast and I'll go to the king. I'll go to the king. You know, whatever will happen, will happen. So the first thing Esther Amalka does is declares a day of tefillah. We have to daven. We have to daven. Gather the Jewish people and we'll daven. What's the second thing she does? Take a look at number 13. And again, you know, part of the challenge sometimes when we learn Megillah Sester is anytime you know a story too well, you no longer really look at it in with a critical eye. So watch what I'm going to show you in sources number 13 and 14. So in 13, the Megillah says, So finally, after the days of prayer, the communal prayer, Esther summons up the courage. She goes to the king. You know the story. She goes to the king, nervous, davening the whole time. And what happens? The king sees her, so happy to see her. He extends the scepter. He says to Esther, Malach Esther, Tell me, Esther, what do you want? Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom is yours. Last line, last pasuk in number 13. What does Esther ask for? Vatomer Esther, tov, yavo vahaman hayom So Esther has a simple request. I'd like to host you and Haman for a meal. I'm going to make a suda. I'm going to make a meal. Just me, you, and Haman, a nice little mezuman, and that's it. Come to a meal. I'm inviting you to a meal. King says, okay. Skip to number 14. So now they're sitting at the meal. A couple of psukim, literally, a pasuk later. So now they're sitting at the meal. Achashirish once again says to Esther, Esther, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And what does Esther say? Pasuk ches in number 14. So Esther says, King, if you're willing to honor my request, Esther invites Haman and Achashverosh to another party. So if you are reading this story for the first time, imagine you never saw it before. What's the question that comes to mind when you see this? Simple, simple question. Why? That's always a safe question to ask in any shir. Right? Why? What's the plan? What's the plan? First, first of all, you, you, you went ahead, you summoned up the courage to walk into the king. Now you saw the king, you invited him to a meal. Okay? What, what, what's, what's the plan, Esther? What's the plan? You get to the first meal, then again you invite him to a second meal. Esther Hamalka, what's your plan? Remember, the one thing that the Megillah does for us is the Megillah acts as a narrated story. Remember again, Mordechai and Esther write the Megillah 
after the Purim story. And so they write it, kind of narrating it the whole way through. So there's narration, right? There's a whole bunch of background details. See, here I am. I'm the reader. I'm reading the Megillah. I'm learning the Megillah. I see Esther invited Achashverosh to a party. Fantastic. The next thing I'm looking for is parentheses. Here was her plan. Here, the, the Megillah tells us explicitly Haman's plan, right? Told us ultimately Mordechai's. What's the plan? So the Gemara says something amazing. If you look at number 15, the Gemara asks this question. What was Esther thinking? That she invited Haman and Achashverosh to a party. What was the plan? So Rabbi Elazar Omer, Pachim Tamnalo. She was setting a trap for Haman. Okay, that's nice that she was setting a trap for Haman. Did she know she was setting a trap when she invited them to the first party? Remember, again, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in between party number one and party number two, or dinner number one and dinner number two, right? In between those two dinners is when Achashverosh couldn't sleep that night. Mordechai wasn't reminded. He hears Haman going ahead and making the gallows, a whole bunch of stuff. Esther was setting a trap. Esther goes into the king, thankful that her life was spared. She invites him to a party. And we're reading this on to understand what is the play. What's the plan over here? So I want to share with you something amazing. If you take a look at number 16, Rabbi Soloveitchik, Zechotadik Levracha, um, gave a number of shiurim on Hanukkah and Purim. And these essays, these, these shiurim, were codified as essays in a book called Days of Deliverance. And here I want to share with you what I think is an incredible transformational insight by the Rav. So Rabbi Soloveitchik writes as follows. He says, Esther, no, I'm not going to give you the whole piece, but he said, we'll just read it. However, leveling such a charge against Haman entailed tremendous risks. It could boomerang. This is the reason for Esther's procrastination and slowness. He says, she dreaded the results of an unsuccessful attack on Haman. She took a wait and see attitude. She waited for something to happen, for an event to occur. Rabbi Soloveitchik posits something absolutely amazing. Esther had no plan. She had no plan. So when she goes into the king, and she says to the king, come to a meal, and you were to pull Esther aside, what's your plan? What's your plan? And Esther says, I don't know. I don't know. We're just going to have to wait and see what happens. But I'm pretty sure if I keep me, Achashverosh, and Haman in a room, something is going to explode. Something's going to happen some way, somehow. How, when, where, what? No idea. So the Rav posits, Esther had no plan. It was a wait and see approach. It was simple procrastination. Normally, again, I'm going to come out on record against procrastination. Except if you're Esther Hamalka and there's no other plan. I just have to keep the ball rolling. I have to keep things going and try to see what is going to unfold. If you look at the second paragraph on number 16, the Rav writes, Esther succeeded. A young, frail maiden, the daughter of immigrants, defeated the most powerful prime minister in the annals of Persia. The charismatic woman, upon whom God let his spirit descend and upon whom God placed the burden of becoming the people, the, uh, the, uh, the burden of becoming the people. This woman nation emerged victorious. Yes, Mordechai was the initiator, the teacher, the first messenger. He awakened her. He fired her imagination. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. And sensitized her heart. Through him came the inspired word to her. Yet the strategy was hers. She, couldn't, she could not consult with Mordechai. And even if she could, she would not have accepted advice from him. Providence wanted her to do everything on her own, all by herself. God's spirit descended upon her and she attained victory. So before we go on to the next verse, I want to show you what's unfolding over here. 
So Esther Amalko, right? She has this exchange with Mordechai. And the exchange with Mordechai is, Mordechai gives her Musr. And the Musr is, how long are you going to live in the shadow of anonymity? How long are you going to hide behind the throne? How long are you going to hide behind this? How long are you going to live in the shadows in life before you carve out a definitive identity for yourself? And Esther hears this and she says, you're right. And she does two things. The first thing we said was tefillah. The second thing was inviting to the Seudos. So we just spoke about the Seudos. And now we understand, and again, I have to tell you, when I saw this piece of the Rav, I, it never dawned on me to ask the question of what was Esther's plan. But it's such a good question. And the Rav says she didn't have a plan. She didn't have a plan. We'll discuss she did have a kind of plan. But again, it was all about seeing how I have to just keep the ball rolling. I have to keep things going. And we'll see how things will unfold. But let's go back to tefillah for just a moment. Take a look at number 17. I included for you over here a longer piece by the Rav. We're not going to do all of it. But I wanted you to see it because Rabbi Soloveitchik's words are quite, uh, quite inspiring and beautiful. So the Rav writes, The inspired charismatic woman is superior to inspired charismatic man in two areas. I figured that's a good line for a women's shear. Right? I figured it'll only help my ratings. So what happened? The area of applied practical thinking and the area of prayer. So listen, listen to this. He says, the woman knows something that man does not know. Was not Chana, the great charismatic teacher, who taught the entire congregation of Israel how to pray and how to confront God with petition. Right? Chana, Shmuel Aleph. Shmuel Aleph, Perak Aleph. Right? Chana, the mother of Shmuel, is from where we learn so many of the halachos of tefillah. How do we know that in Shmuel Azri, you're supposed to move your lips, but you're not supposed to utter a sound? From Chana. The whole concept of personal devotional prayer comes from Chana. And Rabbi Soloveitchik says something amazing. Our sages said, many important rules can be derived from the first way to Chana's prayer. He says, it's interesting, says, yes, Chana would not have been counted among 10 persons comprising a quorum. So it's true, Chana can't count as, as part of the minion. Nevertheless, she is our teacher regarding prayer. If not for her, we would not know how to pray. But then the Rav goes on. While Chana taught the individual, the lonely man or woman, how to pour out his or her soul in times of distress and vexation, Esther taught Mordechai, the Jews, and all future generations how to pray in assembly, in community, when disaster strikes the nation. What an incredible observation. Esther Hamalka was the first person to call for communal prayer. She was the first person to say that when we are faced with difficult circumstances, the way to do that is assemble. Get the Jews together and we must daven because there is power in numbers. There is power in collective prayer. So what Chana was, what Chana was to individual tefillah, Esther was to communal prayer. So do you see what's happening over here? Esther Hamalka, who until that caustic exchange with Mordechai, and it was a cost, it was a sharp exchange. Esther Hamalka, who we don't even know what her name is. Is she Esther? Is she Adas? Again, so sun, moon, 74, 24, all these different things. And Mordechai says, how long? How long are you going to live in the shadows? How long are you going to remain anonymous? And Esther says, you're right. You're right. It is time for me to carve out my identity. And she does two things. She goes out and she calls for communal prayer. 
And she launches a strategy of procrastination. It was a strategy of procrastination in order to try to figure out how to undermine Haman. And Rabbi Soloveitchik says, these two approaches or these two plans, tefillah and the suda, required two dramatically opposite skill sets. Look, the Rav goes on. The gesture of cunning. So the Rav calls, he calls Esther's plan of the Suda cunning. I don't know, for some reason I think cunning we often like think like has like a negative connotation. See, he's, Rav of course is not using it in that way. He, he means that she's a strategist. She's a strategist. Sly is a negative word. She's cunning. She's, she's very, she's, I'm going to use the word manipulative in a good way. Right, sometimes you have to be able to manipulate the circumstances in order to bring about a particular result. So Esther Hamalka had to, had, to, had to exhibit a certain need of cun- cunningness, cunning kite, you know, in, in order to go ahead and be able to undermine Haman. So the Rav goes on, he says, the gesture of cunning and that of prayer represent two opposite aspects of the human personality, which find their reconciliation in woman. Cunning in contrast to slyness, he says, uh, skip a little bit, is an art that only the adult is capable of mastering. Only mature people, toughened by experience, have the ability of planning strategy, of devising schemes, of not overlooking the smallest detail and not dismissing the most far-fetched possibilities. So what Esther Hamalka exhibited was the ability to be a strategist, was the ability to be cunning. She didn't have a plan, but the non-plan was a plan. I don't know how to undermine Haman, but I know that he's power hungry. Remember, she also knew something very important about her husband, which was... Right, Achashverosh. If Achashverosh was on the therapist's couch, what would they diagnose him with? Well, they diagnose him with a number of different things, right? But a very severe case of very, very low self-esteem. Achashverosh, which is interesting because he's the king of the mightiest empire in the face of the earth. Yet ultimately, again, the man has no self-esteem. That's why, again, throughout the Megillah, whoever pumps up Achashverosh's ego more has his attention and allegiance. So when Haman does that at the beginning of the Megillah, Haman has it, which is by the way, just as an aside, do you want to know why Achashverosh ultimately went ahead and married Esther, even though he knew, he did not know who she was? Because that's exactly the kind of wife he wanted. See, Achashverosh wanted an anonymous wife. You know why? Because there's no threat in anonymity. Vashti was a threat. She stood up to him. She stood up to him. He wasn't interested in that. It's not that he was conflict averse. It's that, I mean, he, he just had low self-esteem. So for him, the best thing in the world was a woman who's totally anonymous. So therefore, again, I shine. She does not. She's no threat to me. She has no standing. She has no station. So Esther Hamalka becomes this incredible strategist. If you skip a little bit, so what I did is you see, I put the letters in the middle. If you see by the paragraph, by letter A, the right-hand side of A, the right paragraph to A. On the other hand, so on one hand, Esther had to be a strategist. And the ability to strategize, the ability what the Rav calls to be cunning, is really only by adults. Rav points out children don't, children can be manipulative, but they can't be strategists. Yeah, being a strategist comes from understanding the world a little bit, comes from understanding life a little bit, comes from understanding yourself a little bit, understanding people. That's a skill set that adults have. Children don't have it. On the other hand, listen to how beautiful this is. Prayer is an art that the child knows best. This is so moving. 
Children know how to daven the best. The mature person, listen to this, is a cynic, a skeptic, too practical-minded, too tough and insensitive. Maturity ennobles and corrupts man at the same time. When is man summoned to pray? When he is completely overpowered by emotions, by black despair or dazzling joy. When he is under the impression that his world has disintegrated and is in shambles. Or when he feels himself a conqueror. When he is enraptured with himself in the world. When he is delirious with joy. Prayer is an expression of either complete resignation or ecstasy. Prayer reflects an unqualified total experience either of, self, of either self-affirmation or self-negation. Prayer requires the individual's absolute identification with an emotional state. Now you have to appreciate, Rabbi Soloveitchik was part of the Brisk dynasty, the, the Brisker dynasty. And in Brisk, you have to understand that intellect is king, emotion is a weakness. Rabbi Soloveitchik writes that his father, Ramosha Soloveitchik, never told him that he loved him. The Rav never heard his father, never, he never heard his father say, I love you. He said, I know my father loved me very much, but I never heard him say those words. Why? Because in the world of Brisk, right, which, which again is Lithuanian aristocracy, right, in the world of Brisk, in the world of Brisk, emotion is weakness. What was very unique about Rabbi Soloveitchik, this has to do also with Zavre, I mentioned this in other Shigurim, Rabbi Soloveitchik said that he learned a lot of Torah from his, from his father, but he learned emotion from his mother. His mother was a, was a Feinstein. He was a cousin of Moshe. He learned emotion from his mother and from his Chabad Malamid. Very quickly, Ramoshev Soloveitchik was the Rav in a town called Chaslovich, Russia. White Russia. Chaslovich was a Chabad town. How Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik got the job there, I don't know. He wasn't a Chabad man. It was a Chabad town. So the Malamid, the Rebbe in the local cheder, was a Chabad guy. So what happens? The boys were supposed to be learning Bav Metziah. But the Malamid, the Malamid, the teacher, didn't teach them Baba Metziah. Instead, he taught them every day Tanya. When Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik would come, he was the Rav of the town, he would come to inspect the, the Chadarim. So what happened? They, the, the Malamid would put a boy by the entrance. Yeah, when they would see Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik coming, they would come and tell the Malamid, quick, the Rav is coming. They would close their Tanyas, they would open up their Gemaras, and Rabbi Soloveitchik writes his childhood recollections, they would just start yelling. They would just start yelling. Because if you have an open Gemara and you yell, it looks like you're doing something important. So what happened? What happened? So a couple, a number of months later, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik takes young Yosheber, young Yosef Tov, to visit his grandfather of Chaim Soloveitchik. So Chaim Soloveitchik says, No, what are you learning in Yeshiva? Above Metziah. Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik opens the Gemara, calls over his little grandson, who was a child prodigy, says, So tell me something. And young Yosheber, young Yosef Tov, could not, didn't know anything about the Gemara. But yet, he was able to say over the first five chapters of Tanya by heart. So Rabbi Soloveitchik said, that time in Chaslovich with that Malamed taught me the neshama, the heart of Yiddishkeit. From my father, from my father, I got the mind of Yiddishkeit. From my mother and from my Chabad Malamed, I got the heart of Yiddishkeit. So when the Rav says over here that the essence of prayer, the essence of prayer is emotion. And think about this for just a moment. Think about for yourself when the most moving, prayerful moments you've ever experienced. The most moving moments. And it's really just as Rabbi Soloveitchik is, I'll tell you just like on a personal level, and this is going to sound strange, for me, and I, I could pinpoint this because to me it's so clear, my most emotional tefillah moment was when I was with my family, this is already a number of years ago, in Shiloh, 
and we davened, we davened by the site of the, what was the Mishkan. And my wife and my daughters were davening right there. And I was overwhelmed by the reality that my wife and my daughters are davening in the same place that Hannah davened. In the same spot that Hannah poured out her heart to the Ribbono Shalom for a child. That's where my family is davening. I, it wasn't that I was davening for something that I needed or there was some type of existential crisis. I was so overwhelmed by the emotion of the experience, the continuity of Am Yisrael, that somehow my family was connected to Chana all through this sacred soil right here. So Soloveitchik says, prayer is really the purview of children. Prayer is really the purview of children. Children who are emotional know how to daven. I apologize in advance to the Opendins, but if you ever come to our shul and you hear busy Opendin daven, right? I daven right in front of him during the week and I'm jealous because I wish I davened like that. Every word, mila ba mila, a soft, sweet voice. Like me, I'm like, the chazin needs to start chazar shots already. Like this place is to be stuff to do, phone calls to make. Yeah, of course, I'm pious, I daven. But, but at the end of the day, I mean, let's, let's move things along over here. And it's amazing. The Rav says, because tefillah is really the purview of children. That unadulterated emotion, that purity of emotion, that's tefillah. So the Rav goes on, he says, so he says, an adult usually does not experience emotions of unlimited intensity and all-powerful dynamics. When he meets with adversity, he tries to console himself by saying, it's just, skip down a little bit. The child responds, paragraph D, right-hand side. The child responds spontaneously to his emotions. He fluctuates quite often between despair and joy. Children are emotionally volatile. And that's not a diagnosis. That's a statement of fact. Children are supposed to be emotionally volatile. Because when you are a child, you are all emotion. Intellect is the purview of the adult. So watch this. He never tries to censor them. A child doesn't try to hold back his emotions. At the slightest provocation, the child will explode emotionally. He fell and scraped his knee. He runs to his mother for help, crying and complaining as if everything has crumbled and collapsed. Right? We've all had those moments with our children where our children literally have a meltdown. And maybe you've had a long day as well. And what do you want to say to your kid more than anything? Really? This is what you're crying about? This is what you're upset about? This? 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 And then you restrain yourself because you realize that's an adult talking. But from a child's perspective, everything is a calamity, right? My friend wasn't nice to me. I dropped my ice cream. I fell and I hurt my knee. There's this explosion of emotion. Let father or mother bring him a gift that he is expected and waited for. And the child will jump and dance for joy, kiss his parents and repeat, thank you, thank you a hundred times. The distress of a child is boundless and there is no limit to his happiness. He knows how to pray from the depths and at the same time, how to thank and serenade God, how to sing praises to him. So now watch what the Rav is developing. Esther HaMalka, in response to Mordechai's incredibly sharp message, says, you're right, you're right. I have to leave the shadows of anonymity, carve out the personality for myself. And what does she do? She does two things. She becomes a strategist and she becomes a prayer. She becomes a prayer. She, becomes, she engages in tefillah. Two polar opposite things. Esther becomes a sophisticated adult and she becomes an emotional child. And she becomes them both simultaneously. Right? Rabbi Soloveitchik, the last paragraph in number 17. The Jew should be an adult and should be adult and child, grown up and immature at the same time. When called upon to act as a divine agent, to be a history maker, the Jew must be mature, courageous, and intellectually developed. When it is time to pray, 
the Jew must shed his maturity and reach out for either the enthusiasm or grief of the child. The woman is more of an expert in playing this double role. Esther performed it magnificently. She knew how to be cunning and how to pray. Therefore, the Megillah is named for Esther. So if we bring this all together, it turns out that the Megillah is the cathartic evolutionary story of one woman. Esther HaMalka begins the Megillah shrouded in complete obscurity and anonymity. Is it Esther? Is it Adasa? 7454, sun, the moon, who is she? And then what happens? She makes a conscious decision that I'm not going to spend my life as a face in the crowd. I'm not going to spend my life just blending in. I'm not going to recede into the shadows of anonymity. I'm going to create an identity. I'm going to create a personality. And Esther accomplishes something that most of us can't do. This duality of personality. The ability to be a mature adult who strategizes. Do you know how important the midah of strategizing is? Do you know for most of us, when we think about strategizing, right, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Strategizing. For me, for many of us, strategizing is, okay, how do I manage carpool, work, and dinner? Right? That, that, like that, that, by the way, that, that is a strategy. That is a strategy. And that's important. But we sell ourselves social. What about the strategy for my life? What about what I want to do when I grow up? What about who I want to be? What about what I want to accomplish? And by the way, Esther is unique because she was a headline grabber, right? What she does becomes known for all the generations. That doesn't have to be your strategy. Not everything has to be public. Not everything has to be known. But what's your life strategy? What's your strategy for your life? You know, so often what we do, even without realizing is, we go ahead and we give up the driver's seat. We give up the driver's seat. And we just simply slip into the passenger seat. And why? Because the passenger seat is so much more comfortable. What can you do? You could recline. You could put on the warmer, right? The seat warmer. You could open the window. You could take a little nap. It's great. Driving is exhausting. Who wants to drive? So much better to be a passenger. But when you switch over to the passenger seat of your life, either someone else takes the wheel and it happens all the time, where other people determine the direction of our lives. Now, sometimes we can't control what other people do, but you could wrestle the wheel back if you want to. Sometimes we let other people just take the wheel and take us wherever they want to. And sometimes no one ever sits in the driver's seat. And the car just kind of wanders along aimlessly, and wherever it goes, it goes, and hopefully it doesn't crash. And if it crashes, it's okay, because at least I'm rested, right? And at least I'm okay, and I'll get around to fixing the car at some point in time. Esther Malka teaches, you have to be a strategist in life. What's your strategy? What do you want? What do you want to accomplish? Who do you want to be? But Esther Malka also teaches us about the need to be a child, you know, the Esther Malka is not the only person who says this about. Remember, when the Torah speaks about the death of Sarah, meaning the parashas Chayisara. So the Torah says, One hundred years, one twenty years, seven years. And some of the commentaries explain, Rashi has his own approach. But the idea that Sarah Imenu, when she was seven, she was a seven-year-old. But when she was twenty, she was still a seven-year-old. And when she was a hundred, she was still a seven-year-old. She took that childhood emotion 
She took that childhood innocence, right? How many of us have lost our innocence? We look at the world and we're so cynical. And we look at people and we're so cynical, very often because of good reason, because we've been hurt, because we've been mistreated, because you've taken advantage of it. So you could go through life like that if you want to, but what a terrible way to spend your life. Or you could recapture your inner child and try to recapture some of that excitement and try to recapture some of that innocence and decide that I am going to drive the ship of my life. I'm going to be the strategist. I'm going to be the child, like Esther and Malka, all simultaneously. The story of Purim, the story of the Megillah, is at the end of the day, the story of a woman who decided, I no longer want to be anonymous. Because most people live their lives in the shadows of anonymity. They get by, do what I have to do to make it through, do what I have to do to check the box, but I'm really just living an anonymous life. And Esther Malka says, that's a choice. Choose not to be anonymous. Choose to escape from the shadows of obscurity. I think the way if I were to sum it up in a phrase, that what Esther Malka teaches us is if you are a no one, you can become anyone. If you are a no one, you could become anyone. Esther Malka begins the Megillah as a no one. We can't even get her name straight. We don't even know who she is. But this courageous young woman makes a decision to become a someone. And to become a dramatic someone, a someone that maybe is even beyond most of us. Because that duality is incredibly difficult. To be the adult strategist and the emotional child is very difficult simultaneously. But Esther Malka made the decision that if you are no one, you can choose to be anyone. And this is the message of Purim. Because two things happen to us over the course of the journey of life. Number one is that often we just remain anonymous. And sometimes we get locked in to identities. You know, I remember my grandmother, Zichon Levracha, who was, my grandparents were survivors. My grandmother, Zichon Levracha, never liked it when people referred to her as a survivor. She, she didn't like it. She used to say to me, she used to say, Shmuley Khan, there's more to me than surviving the war. There's more to me. Yes, that's a big part of my life, but there's more to me. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a grandmother, I'm a great-grandmother. She was a seamstress, she had a chicken farm. You know, there's more to my life than this one aspect. And so many times in life, we lock ourselves into identities. This is me. This is the box. This is the box. Why is this the box? Because this is the box I've lived in since who knows when. And people do this all the time. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. You're right. You can't control what other people do to you. That is absolutely true. But whether you choose to identify as a victim, as your primary identity, that's your choice. Maybe you're a person who's missed out on incredible opportunities. So you're an opportunity misser. And that's how you choose to codify or concretize your identity. That's a choice you make. So many times in life, we lock ourselves into identities. We lock, some of us lock ourselves into anonymity. Some of, our, some of us lock ourselves into preconceived identities, right? How many times do you hear people say, when they want to undertake a particular spiritual initiative, oh, it's not my hashkafa. It's not my hashkafa. Like, all right. What is your hashkafa? I don't know, but I know that that's not it. That's not it. What does that mean? Why, why create an identity defined by what you're not? Don't you want to create an identity defined by what you are? But we know the answer. 
because it's so much easier to walk around in life saying, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. It takes a lot more clarity and personal strength to say, I am this, I am this, and I am this. Or, I would like to be this. I'm not there yet, but this is what I'm striving towards. Esther Amalka teaches us that we could escape the clutches of anonymity, and ultimately, again, we could escape the clutches of pre-created or pre-ordained personality, behavior, life constructs that we have created for ourselves or that others have created for us. And we can choose to break through that. Mordechai says to Esther, Don't hide in the shadows. Don't hide in anonymity. Don't hide behind the identity you've had because that's what you've had. Now is your moment to come out of the shadows. Now is your moment to do something great. Now is your moment to decide to be the strategist, to decide to be the, cha- to decide to be the channel, to decide to be the child. And I think that this has, with this I'll conclude, I think that this has incredible, incredible importance for the time that we're living in. It's amazing to think that we are a year into the pandemic. One year now into the pandemic, right? I know all of us, when this started right after last Purim, or right, you know, right, right after last Purim, we thought that was fine, by Pesach. By Pesach, this is going to be done. Right, on Pesach, okay, Shavuot is summer, for sure about the new school year, okay, Hanukkah, and, and again, over and over and over. And again, it's still not clear exactly, you know, when this is quote-unquote over. But there's something really important, which is, we have to figure out how we're going to emerge from this. How? What kind of people, what kind of identity are we going to emerge? Because, you know, I've heard people say, you know what I've learned from this pandemic? I'm never shaking hands with people again. Someone said this to me. I'm never shaking hands with people again. Right? So I want to say to the person, that's just because you're generally antisocial. That, that, that has nothing to do with a lesson from, that's the lesson from the pandemic, that you're never shaking hands again. And I'm never shaking, that, that, that's what you, the world's been turned upside down. Over a million people dead. Everything has changed. How am I changing? You see, I think what this pandemic has brought for many of us is, it's upended our reality. It's changed everything. And there is a golden opportunity here. There's a golden opportunity to become someone different on the other end of this someone better on the other end of this. There's the opportunity to stop being anonymous and start carving out an identity. There's an opportunity to stop living in obscurity and start creating a personalistic identity. There's an opportunity to become an adult if we need to or to become a child if we need to. There's an opportunity to make something of ourselves. I'll end off last source for tonight. There's a beautiful Gemar Meseches Pesachim. And the Gemar writes something beautiful. The Gemar speaks about one of the turrets in the Beis HaMikdash. And the turret was named, amazingly enough, Shushan Habira. The Gemara says, So if you can imagine when you were walking towards the eastern gate of the Beis Hamikdash, there was a turret, a turret, like a tower, a turret. And that turret was called Shushan Habira. Shushan, the capital city. And Rashi points out in number 19, Rashi says, why was it called, why, why did they have a turret called Shushan Habira? So Rashi says, first of all, it had a beautiful mural of the city of Shushan painted on it. So why did they have a turret for Shushan Abira? So on the most basic level, it was a sign of gratitude to the Persian Median Empire because it was Esther's son, Koresh, right? Cyrus, who allowed for the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. So their Hakar Satov, their gratitude to the Persian Median Empire was a Shushan Abira turret. But look what Rashi says, the last three words in number 19. Do you know why we needed a turret called Shushan Abira? Kideshiyedu mehechan ba'u. 
so that every Jew who came to the Beis HaMikdash should know one thing, where they came from. Where do we come from? We come from Shushan Habira. And who do we come from? We come from Esther HaMalka. Because Esther HaMalka teaches us the most important life lesson. That whereas it's relaxing and convenient to live in anonymity, each of us has the ability to create and to hewn out a beautiful personalistic identity. Let's use this Yom Tov of Perm as an opportunity to figure out what is our strategy for successful living. What do we want to do? What do we want to accomplish? Who do we want to be? And just like the Geula, the redemption of Purim occurred because one young woman decided to leave the shadows of ambiguity, choose a name, choose an identity, and become someone. If we follow in this heroine's footsteps and we find that same courage as well, we will be Zohar Hashem to bring in the next period of Geula, the Geula of Mashiach, the Geula of the Beis Hamikdash, the Geula of all of us together in Eretz Abhira Biyamenu. Amen.